Philippians chapter number 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 12. Paul says, But I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this treasure precious opportunity it is to gather in your house tonight with your people. I pray that you would speak to hearts, Lord. I pray that the Spirit of God would wield His sword, the Word of God, and would do a permanent, eternal work in our hearts, minds, and lives for your glory. Lord, we're not here by accident, so we must be here by providence. And help us to treat it with the honor and reverence that it's worthy of. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, the book of Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles, meaning that he wrote it while he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, I think even in the verses that we just read, in a a cursory reading of those verses, it's apparent. He talks about his bonds, and he talks about what's happened to him, and he talks about that uh, some are desiring to add affliction and, and add weight and add pressure to the uh, bonds that he was already experiencing. Uh, Paul was no stranger to affliction. He was no stranger to trials and tribulations and trouble. One of my favorite uh, thoughts and facts about the life of Paul, if you follow him through the book of Acts, you'll find that just about everywhere Paul uh, went, just a few verses later, it talks about there being an uproar or there being a great stir. God help me and you to be the kind of Christians that everywhere we go, things are either going to get right or get crazy. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, Listen, we ought to be uh, like salt. You know, salt is, and I'm about to get into my other message I was praying about, and I ain't going to do that tonight. Me and the Lord done made our minds up about it. But salt, when you think about us being the salt of the earth, the one thing that salt does not have the capacity to do is to leave something unchanged. In fact, the only time that salt can be added to something and it not change anything is if it's added to other salt. That's part of what's problem in the Christian world today is a lot of our Christianity we've confined to the four walls that we find ourselves within, and then we wonder why we're not making a difference in the world. Well, listen, if you if you add more salt to the salt shaker, that ain't going to change nothing. You've got to get the salt out of the salt shaker and apply it somewhere where it can make a difference. And everywhere Paul went, he made a difference. He changed the environment that he was in. This, of course, leads to several imprisonments during his life. And you would imagine a person that has had such a vast amount of trouble and affliction that you would, when you get around them, they would be defined by sourness, complaint, and a negative attitude. But when you read the book of Philippians, you'll find that there is one word, a small word, but it towers over every other word in the book of Philippians. It is the theme, the key word of Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi, and it's the word joy. Joy. 
Now, how is it that a man is sitting in prison, how is it that a man that's enduring what Paul is enduring, when he sits down with pen in hand, now, listen, I understand the Holy Ghost wrote the book of Philippians, but he didn't do it in spite of Paul. He didn't do it uh, absent of Paul's personality. How is it that a man takes pen in hand, sits down, and as he writes a letter to a group of people, the one word he can't keep out of that letter is the word joy? The fact is, and and this is the truth, especially around this Christmas season, uh, it's often that we're so blessed, are we not? Man, we're such a blessed people. And, And I'm preaching to myself when I say this. It's easy to let a lot of the incidentals of life rob our joy in the Lord. It's easy to let a lot of noise and a lot of clutter and let a lot of, uh, uh, of a lot of static from this world cloud our joy. And it's easy to lose perspective. Let me tell you something. Your joy is so deeply connected to your spiritual perspective that it almost is inseparable. If your perspective is not right, then your joy will not be right. By the same token, if your perspective is right, Christ said this about our joy, that our joy shall no man take. See, here's what I'm trying to get through your mind. And I ain't even got into my message, but I want to get it into your mind before we even start with the message. Is that we cannot control the circumstances of life, but only you and I can control the spirit and attitude with which we meet those circumstances. And what's going to dictate and define both our spiritual vigor and our testimony and our effectiveness for Christ is not necessarily the circumstances that we're in, but the spirit that we exhibit in the midst of it. Paul's a man that has almost unimaginable pressure on him, and yet he still has the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is something that nothing in this world can, by force of its own will, absent from our relenting to it, can snuff out the joy of the Lord. It is literally Paul's spirit in this epistle, is it seems unconquerable as he's facing these things. And I want you to notice a word that he uses. Now remember, we're going to talk a lot about joy, but I ain't preaching about joy, I'm preaching about perspective. Your joy is dependent on your perspective. I want you to notice what he says in verse 12. And uh, verse number 13, he says, But I would ye should understand, brethren. Understand, that's a word of perspective, isn't it? He's saying, I have a certain way of viewing my condition, my circumstances. He says, I want to impart that to you. I want you to view what I'm going through the same way that I'm viewing what I'm going through. I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me, notice this next phrase, have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. You know, I find that there seems to be two... There's always two ditches on either side of the road. And I mean that proverbially speaking, although that's usually true, especially in East Tennessee. East Tennessee, there's two ditches on either side of the road and a big old pothole in the middle. Somebody say amen to that. But, but proverbially speaking, there's a ditch on each side of the road. And I find that most Christians occupy one of the two. And what I mean to say about that is this... When we have trials, when we have afflictions, when problems come into our life, it seems as though there are some who choose to uh, abandon the concept of God's providence and sovereignty and attribute everything they're going through to the individual actors that are participating, that are a part of it. It's funny, man. I Listen, I've known people in my life, they believed God was on the throne until something went wrong. 
And then all, all of a sudden it was this person did this and that person did that and this person did this and that person did that. And I'm sitting there thinking, whoa, now wait a minute, you're talking about what everyone else is doing. What about God? What God's doing in this thing? Either He's in control or He's not in control. There is, however, a ditch on the other side of the road. There are some that, that allow that belief in providence to rob any semblance of personal accountability or culpability from a person's actions. Uh, I, this taken to the extreme is what the Calvinists believe. Nobody really makes choice in anything. God has just foreordained it. But I find that often it creates a blind spot in believers that I think is unhealthy for them and also unhealthy for the people that are watching them go through afflictions. You see, if you live in a fantasy world, and if you deny the reality that there are real, present, substantive dangers that beset the believer, you're going to be unequipped and unprepared for when those dangers arrive. And you're probably not going to show the due respect and due reverence to those dangers. You're probably going to live in a cavalier, casual, and careless way. You can see this with children. Children have no concept of how dangerous the world really is. It's why they'll walk up to a stranger and talk to a stranger. It's why they'll run through a parking lot. It's why they'll, you know, do, they'll climb up on something tall and decide they're going to jump off of it. They don't have a clear grasp of the real dangers of the world that's around them. And you can get hurt living that way. Now, I've found this to be true. There's a ditch on both sides, but the truth usually finds the middle. What Paul says in this passage is he recognizes that there are some that are trying to harm him. But he recognizes that the providence of God has co-opted and has somehow superimposed providential favor upon his circumstances. The reason this is so important is because it, it reveals to us a crucial decision that every one of us must make, which is how am I going to face the trials that I'm going through. I want you to notice three simple thoughts tonight, then we'll close. Paul's usage of the word rather is interesting back in verse number 12. When you say the word rather, you're talking about the meeting point, the crisis point of two opposing wills or outcomes. For instance, if you were to say, well, I, I and some of y'all had to make this decision over the past few days. Some of you had to say, well, I'd rather have the turkey, but I guess I'll have the ham. Or you might have had to say, well, I'd rather have the flat screen TV, but I wound up with tube socks. Amen? I'd rather have this happen, but instead, that happened. Or you might say this, I was looking for such and such to take place, but rather than that taking place, something else did. Paul reveals in the use of this word rather that there is an opposition in the life of the believer. There are two opposing wills. And this is so vitally important. If you think the only person that has a will for your life is God, then you're not going to be prepared to resist the will of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You need to recognize that there is an enemy that seeks to destroy you. You need to recognize there is literally a force, a will that emanates from three different places. We'll talk about them in a moment. But that if you allow it, will destroy your spiritual life. Listen, too many, and you've heard the old songwriter said, listen, it, it's a battleground, brother, not a playground. There's too many believers that are wandering through life playing fast and loose with their own spiritual condition because they don't recognize that it could happen to them rather than the other people who are the statistics and the sermon illustrations. 
Paul says there were two opposing wills here. And he recognizes that he has a desire to serve the Lord. But there were some that had a desire to see that desire derailed and disrupted. I would say to you tonight, and you won't necessarily find this in the text, but you'll find it all the way through the Word of God, that there's a threefold opposition we need to recognize. First off, there's an external opposition. And that's the world. The world. When we talk about the world, we're talking about a system. Now, that's not to say that every person that is lost is an active, conscious participant in that system. But by dint of their fallen, depraved nature, they are bent towards iniquity and depravity. This world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And the sooner you recognize that the world is at stark, polar, irreconcilable, other than by the blood of Christ and a miraculous transformation. But apart from that, it is, a, it is at a, a mutually exclusive position from God. The sooner you recognize that, the sooner you'll be equipped to face the decisions you have to make in this world. You know, James said this, that friendship with the world, it's enmity with God. Unless we wonder what that means, he says, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That means when you think about an enemy, we have this concept today because we live in such a media inundated society and such a propagandist society that we identify a person being an enemy with a deep, abiding, visceral hatred. But that's not always been the case throughout human history. Throughout human history, often there'd be two opposing forces and they'd be enemies. They wouldn't necessarily hate each other, but they just had conflicting desires and agendas. Listen, I'm not saying that everybody walking around in the world has a hatred of Bible Christianity. I'm not saying that everyone in your family that's lost hates the fact that you're a Christian. I'm saying this, the direction they're going and the direction that you as a believer ought to be going are two different directions. And the sooner you recognize that, that there is a force, a will, a system that is trying to pull you away from serving God, the sooner you'll be equipped to be able to face that. This is where the age-old sage wisdom of erring on the side of safety comes into play. Listen, there's a lot of Christians been derailed by flirting with things that they should have had sense enough to just stay away from in the first place because it was questionable. And if your position on trying to determine separation is, well, show me chapter and verse and nail it down, I'm not against chapter and verse. But I'm saying this, if that's your position, if your position is prove to me that it's wrong and then I'll stay away from it, it won't be long, friend. You'll pitch your tent towards Sodom and you'll be in the gate of the city. The attitude, the disposition of the believer ought to be to recognize that the world's doing everything it can to pull us away from the Lord. It's doing everything it can to destroy Bible Christianity. Maybe not every active conscious, or maybe not every person in the world is an active conscious participant, but the world system and the world culture and the world bend is trying to pull us away. We don't be isolationists. That's staying in the salt shaker. But we do have to be separatists and we have to make up our mind that we're going to be different. We're going to be consecrated. There's an external opposition. But let me just remind you of this. There's an internal opposition. Within you and I resides an old nature that cannot be subject to the things of God. It must not be, it can't be bargained with, it can't be negotiated with, it can't be satisfied or mollified, it has to be crucified if we're going to grow closer to the Lord. Listen, you're not mostly good with a little bit of bad. 
That's the world's concept, yin and yang. Everybody's mostly good, but a little bit bad. I've seen too much of the world to believe that. You're mostly bad, and anything in you that's good has come from God, and you've received it by grace. And we need to recognize that we have that predisposition to wrongdoing. It's always going to be easier to do wrong than to do right. There's always going to be a pull, as long as we're in this vile body. Thank the Lord that Paul, later on in this very book, he says that our vile body will be made like unto His glorious body at His appearing. But as long as we walk in this flesh, we're going to have to constantly battle an internal opposition. Listen, you ain't never going to be able to serve God and it be easy as it relates to your flesh. Your flesh will always recoil. You say, well, preacher, how do you do it? That's discouraging. you got to crucify self. Like Paul said, you got to die daily. There's an internal opposition, but I'd remind you that there's also a supernatural opposition. Uh, Peter said this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. God has a will for your life. Praise the Lord. Listen, I'm glad God has a plan for my life, because I ain't got one. Somebody say amen to that. And if I did, it'd be a mess. (laughs) If I did, I wouldn't even know how to start planning, amen? Because I don't know what's coming down the road. I felt a little silly with going through these calendars, and I was working with people and asking them to give me, uh, you know, uh, different events and stuff. And the whole time I'm thinking, we can't make it from now to next week without things going sideways. How are we going to plan a whole year out, you know? The fact is, you can plan and plan and plan and plan. But you and I, no man knows what is on the morrow, we don't know what a day may bring forth. We have, may not have a plan for our life. God does have a plan for our life. But I'd remind you this too, that the devil has a plan. Now listen, it is, and I want to be careful how I say this. I don't want to do anything to slight God's will for our lives. But I would say this, that God's plan and will for your life is the most thought out. And ours is the least. And the devil's is somewhere in between. The devil, the first time he's ever mentioned in Scripture, you know the word, the modifier, the adjective that God ascribes to him? says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. When we think of subtle, we think of it in terms of discretion. But subtle in that context means he don't come busting through the front door. No, he tries to slip through the back door. The devil has an absolute marked out planned desire for your life. It may change in as much as it's thwarted by the power and spirit of God. But he has a plan nonetheless. And we need to recognize, that's why Peter exhorted the folks he wrote to to be sober and vigilant. Sober, we understand what sober means, right? Uh, I always, when I, when I think of, most people think of sober, they think it means not drunk. Uh, but sober means to be serious. And I do always like, and it's sort of funny to talk about, but I always the, the only real exposure that I had to alcohol or to drunkenness growing up was watching Andy Griffith. Amen? You know, you've heard that, right, about, about Andy Griffith. Everybody in Mayberry is single. Barney's single. Thelma Lou's single. Helen's single. Andy's single. All of them single. The only person married is Otis, and he's a drunk. Amen? <laughs> I don't know if that's an indictment against marriage or what, but... And I always think of Otis as he's stumbling through town and everything. He is not sober. And the idea of a person being sober is that they have an awareness of reality around them. You and I, spiritually speaking, need to have an awareness of reality. This is what I mean about the danger. A lot of folks are stumbling through life, acting like there's no danger. 
And at the same time, churches being destroyed, families being destroyed, marriages falling apart, kids going to the far country. We need to recognize this thing is real. And if we don't get serious about it, we can become a casualty to it as well. The devil has a plan, a desire for your life. There is an opposition. You will not serve God without there being an opposition. If you're doing anything for Christ, the devil's going to know about it, and he's going to let you know that he knows about it. But now, wait a minute. If I see that there's an opposition in this passage, remember, the word rather denotes two opposing forces or wills meeting at a crisis point. If there is a wicked, an ungodly, an iniquitous opposition, then that means there's another road that we can choose to take. And I would say to you tonight that not only is there an opposition, but every time there's an opposition, there's also an opportunity. And that's what Paul says. He says these things that the devil wanted to use to destroy me, that my flesh wanted to relent and give in to, that the world sat back and and, and crowed and, and, and triumphed over me. They thought they had me beat. And I could have gone that direction. And I was I was meant to by their design and will. I was meant to be destroyed by these things. But rather, he says, they've fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, Paul looks at it and says, I can either sit around and gripe and moan, or I can make my mind up that I'm going to see what God's doing in this thing. And I want you to notice a few things. Look at verse 15 through 17. I want you to notice the particulars surrounding this. And, and I'll go ahead and admit to you there's some about this these verses I don't understand, but I'm going to give you my best perspective and, and opinion on it. It says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds but the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. Now, here is the the best uh, deduction I can make. Here is the best way I can read that, and you may have a better way. Come and tell me if you do. But it seemed as though, of course, the name of Paul was getting to be well known. It would actually be at, at Nero's command that eventually Paul would be executed. And all throughout Rome, and all throughout Greece, and all throughout these areas in Asia Minor, people knew the name of Paul the Apostle, used to be Saul of Tarsus. And they knew he had been imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel. And there were two ways that people responded to that. There were some folks that were emboldened and encouraged by seeing his testimony and his stand, and they were emboldened to preach the gospel and to suffer affliction if necessary. It seems as though there's other people, however, that whether they were sincere or not, it seems from the passage they weren't even sincere in preaching Christ. They might have been doing it for money. They might have been doing it for power. They might have been doing it for influence. They might have been doing it because they didn't have nothing else to do. But it's evident that these men were hirelings of some sort. And unwilling to bear the heat of affliction, they distanced themselves from Paul. And I believe what they were probably doing was saying something like this. Oh, that Paul the Apostle, he's a kook. He's crazy. He don't represent us. He's not the real deal. We're the real deal. He's not the real deal. Evidently, throughout all of Paul's ministry, he was slandered relentlessly. And every church that he planted, the devil would plant someone there too to try to undermine the testimony of Paul the Apostle. But notice the perspective that he has in verse 18. Man, I don't know if I could say this. I hope by God's grace, I know by God's grace I could. But I hope by God's grace I would. He says, what then? That's a pointed question, isn't it? He's saying, so what does it all boil down to? 
Can I ask you a question? You may be going through trials, afflictions, things you didn't ask for, things you didn't pray for, things you didn't plan for. What then? When you push away all of the complaining, all of the analyzing, all of the postmortem, all of the deducing, and all of the uh, uh, all of the examination of your situation, when you push all that away, and you get down to what you can do, what then? What does it boil down to? Some of us are paralyzed by analysis. Some of us, we spend all of our time going over and over and over and over our problems and never getting down to the sheer reality of what our options and choices truly are. Paul pushed all that away. He could have sat around, I'm going to say a word about this in a moment, but he could have sat around and cursed the folks that were trying to hurt him. He could have sat around and slandered the Roman government. He could have sat around and, and, and ruminated over what different decisions he could have made and what he would have done different and what he should have and every bit of it would have been a waste of time. What then? Listen, we all go through times when we have troubles and afflictions where like Job, we just go and sit down in the ashes for seven days. I get it. I'm not saying there's not something cathartic about it. I'm not saying there's not a place for it. I'm not saying God don't minister in it. But at a certain point, you've got to say, what then? What then? At a certain point, it's time to get up out of the ash pile. It's time to look at the reality of your circumstances it's time to say, okay, now it's time to make a decision. What can I truly do? He says, what then? Notwithstanding. Notwithstanding what? Everything. You know what the term notwithstanding means? It means regardless of all that. All that being tabled. Let's put a pin in all of that other stuff. All the stuff that might cloud up the what then? He says, notwithstanding. Notwithstanding who's to blame. Notwithstanding what I wish I had done different, notwithstanding who's done me wrong, notwithstanding everything. He says this, notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. His perspective on it was this, that regardless of what it meant to and for him, as long as there were some things that God was bringing about through it, that's all that really mattered. I want you to notice his priorities. And he mentions three of them. Look at back verse number 13. This is the first one he mentions. He says, These things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. You can read the book of Acts and find this to be true. Paul, because of what he was experiencing and going through, Paul was able to get in by shackles how he never could have got in by connections. He was able to stand before kings, and ultimately, he was able to stand before emperors. I want you to notice, first off, the first priority is that his bonds be exposed. He said, I want folks to know what I'm going through. Now, you might say, well, why would Paul care? Look down at verse 19, he tells us. He says, for I know that this, what is this? This is his situation, his trials, his afflictions. I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. <laughs> he could have sat around and said, hey, there's people talking bad about me. Instead, he said, hey, there's people praying for me. He could have sat around and cursed those that were slandering him. But instead, he rejoiced 
that there were some interceding for him. You know, it could be if you weren't going what you was going through, people wouldn't think to pray for you the way they're praying for you. It could be God has brought something into your life not necessarily even with that situation or the immediate effect of it being the end result. It could be there's something completely else going on that you needed to be prayed for. And God has brought you into a place of affliction to bend and break the hearts of those around you that they'd lift you up in prayer. Prayer is the most undervalued and underestimated resource in this world. And I think too often we take lightly the prayers of other people. Listen, when I ask you to pray for me, just as a matter of passing conversation, I mean it. I mean it because I need it. How many times have you said, when you was going through troubles and afflictions, I felt the prayers of God's people? You know why? Because there's folks praying for you. You know why there's praying for you? Because you was going through something. Paul says, I'm glad my bonds are being manifest. Because what it's going to do is make people pray for me. Make people lift my name up to the throne room of God. It could be if I was to live my life in leisure and in ease, they'd forget about me. They'd have no real reason to pray for me, though I need their prayers. But because of what I'm going through, they can't ignore me. And they've got to pray for me if they're going to pray for anybody. His first priority is that his bonds be exposed. His second is that the brethren be encouraged. Verse 14, he says, And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, it could be what you're going through has a lot less to do with you as it does with somebody else. It could be what God's putting you through. He'll, he'll Listen, He'll bring good out of it. He'll, he'll perfect you. He'll comfort you. You'll come out of it knowing Him in a deeper way. But it could be it ain't really at the end of the day even about you. It could be there's somebody who you're never going to even know was going through something. And they sat at the sideline and they watched you. And they observed what you went through. And they whispered to themselves in their moments of fear, if they can make it, I can make it. If God do that for them, then God will do that for me. People were watching what Paul was going through. I don't know how you'd feel. I know it'd make me nervous. I hope again by God's grace that I'd be bold. If I was preaching the gospel and being threatened for it, and, and being told they're going to wreck my life, take everything I own, put me in prison, separate me from my family. But I tell you this, it sure, sure feel good. If there's somebody else that I could see if I was going through that, not that I'd wish it upon them, but if I could see somebody else bear up under that, and somebody else keeping their testimony under that, and somebody else keeping their joy throughout that situation, it might make me say this, boy, if they can do it, I can do it. And if they're willing to do it, then why shouldn't I be willing to do it? I'm reminded whenever uh, the children of Israel went out to war, well, they didn't really go out to war, but they were encamped in Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, and the Philistines were encamped just across the hill. And Saul was doing nothing. He was sitting with his men under the, the pomegranate tree and waiting, waiting for who knows what. And his son Jonathan looks over at his armor bearer and says, now, I believe if the Lord's with us, we whoop a few of them. And so he says, I tell you what, let's go over the hill. And they put a fleece, and I'm not necessarily an advocate of doing that, but it did happen at times in the Old Testament. They put a proverbial fleece out before the Lord. They said, we're going to see if, if God's with us in this matter. And the Lord made it known to them that he was with them in that. 
And all of a sudden, man, there goes Jonathan, his armor bearer, tearing in to the Philistine army. And they're slaying and slaying and slaying. But you know, something remarkable happened. The men that were back in the camp, they heard a, a, a commotion going on down on the battlefield. And so they go out and they look and they see some fighter down there, just a man and his armor bearer that are laying low. They're enemies that they feared so deeply. And they take a head count and they say, well, the only person that ain't here is Jonathan and his armor bearer. And Saul says, well, listen, if he's down there fighting, we're going to be down there fighting. And down they went into the battle. Not only that, there were some folks, some Israelites that had hid in the caves because they didn't want to fight. And when they saw what was going on down on the battlefield, they came out and ran and got into the middle of it and started to fight. And then there were some folks that were across enemy lines that had defected and were fighting with the Philistines. And when they saw what Jonathan was doing and saw that the Lord was with them, they just turned around and started fighting, killing the fellows right beside them. You don't know who's watching you. You don't know who'll be encouraged and emboldened by your stand. Could be that there's folks sitting under a pomegranate tree that think it's useless to fight. They see you doing something for the Lord and they say, well, if they can, I can. There might be some folks that have been run out of the battle because they're scared and they're not willing to pay the cost and they're hiding in caves. And they look out and say, if they can do it, I can do it. And there might be some folks that have done switch sides and they're Christians in hiding and they've lived and went the way of the world because they didn't think they had the courage to stand for Christ. And they say, if they can do it, I can do it. One of Paul's priorities was that the brethren be encouraged. Then look down. Verse number 18, he says, What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, he says, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. He says in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation of my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. His ultimate priority was that the blessed Savior be exalted doesn't matter what I go through if much is made of Jesus Christ. doesn't matter. You see, this whole thing of living for God is constructed in that way. It's the reason that he says later, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. He says, if I had my way, I'd leave this world and I'd quit. But he says, that's not what God's called me to. God's called me to live and to serve. John said it this way, I've got a decrease. He's got to increase. That's not just a suggestion. That's the way that it operates. The closer you get to God, the more feeble you're going to feel. That's not to say that God doesn't imbue spiritual strength and a sense of, of security. He does. But that is present there only in as much as our own natural strength is, is abandoned. As we decrease, He increases. As we increase, He decreases. Instead of lamenting and moaning that we're decreasing, we can choose to rejoice that He's increasing. And that's what it really comes down to. You see, there's an opposition here. And there's an opportunity here. And the decision about which one of those two wins out reminds us that there's an option here. Paul could have done three things. I'm just going to tell them to you and then I'm going to close. Here's what we can do. When we have when we have affliction trials, number one, we can try to retaliate. We can try to get back at them and show them and prove to them and set them right. But you know, I found this to be true, that <laughs> vengeance doesn't belong to you and I. 
if we take it unto ourselves, we'll have only the guilty conscience of a thief. There's no satisfaction in vengeance. Or at least the only part of us that's ever satisfied is the flesh. The spiritual man is never satisfied. We can retaliate. Number two, we can retreat. A lot of folks are doing that. Just giving up. Giving up because it's easier to hide than it is to serve. It's easier to hide than it is to live. It's easier to hide. It'd be easier just to die than to live. Because to live is Christ. To die is gain. Or we can choose to do what Paul did. We can rejoice. He said, I therein do rejoice. And then he tells himself. He, he, he encourages himself. He gives himself a pep talk. He says, I therein do rejoice. Yea, and will rejoice. Paul says, you want to know where I have cast my vote, my will, I will rejoice. The devil can't rob you of your joy. You have to give it to him. Nobody can rob you of your joy. You have, no, your joy shall no man take. You can forfeit it. And boy, there's a lot of joyless Christians walking around in the world. But I think rather it would be better that we trust the Lord, rejoice in Him, and commit that we're going to live for Him no matter what happens, that we're not going to complain about the path that God has laid out for us. But we're going to see that as long as Christ is being lifted up, that's all that matters.